I'm not just breaking eggs. Hmm. I'm trying to save the planet. Uh, I'm trying to yeah. save the lives of all the people on this planet. Welcome to the Lid Is On podcast from New End News. I'm Connor Lennon. That was the voice of Ben Ferentz, the last living prosecutor of what were known as the subsequent Nuremberg trials, which took place between 1946 and 1949. These were 12 US military tribunals, following on from the trials of those who led the Nazi regime. Vengeance is not our goal, nor do we seek merely a just retribution. We ask this court to affirm by international penal action man's right to live in peace and dignity, regardless of his race or creed. At just 27, Ferenc was designated as the chief prosecutor of the Einsatzgruppen trial. How do you plead to this indictment? Guilty or not guilty? During the trials, Ferenc came into contact with notorious high-ranking SS officers such as Otto Ollendorf, Heinz Jost and Paul Blobel, who were all eventually sentenced to death. Following the trials, Ferenc went on to lead the successful campaign for an international criminal court. At 99 years of age, he is today one of the last living links to the creation of the post-war international justice system. Earlier this month, in the build-up to the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Genocide Convention, Zaid Rad al-Hussein, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, sat down with Ferenc at UN headquarters in New York. He started by asking Ferenc to reflect on the importance of the historic declaration and René Cassin, one of the driving forces behind the Commission on Human Rights, established in 1947, and author of the first draft of the famous document. I always carry with me what I have now in my pocket, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I have it in my bag, which I'm sitting on, <laughs> together with the United States Constitution uh, and uh, the, US, the, the United Nations Charter. And those have been my guides. René Cassin was a visionary. He had experienced the war. He knew the horrors of war. As a decent human being, he recognized the need for universal principles because the world war covered many countries, but not the whole universe. And we are all members of one small planet yeah. and we should deal with the problems in a planetary sense. But it's a crying out for what I now call prohibition of crimes against humanity. It's an appeal of humanity to law. And I use that phrase. Yes. Uh, and I was inspired by people like René Cassin, yes. uh, who were following uh, those guidelines. And I very much regret that uh, this Universal Declaration of Human Rights, unfortunately, is being violated in more of the principles than it's being accepted. What strikes me, of course, is when you look at the world today, sadly, alas, we still see uh, some terrible uh, crimes being committed in northern Rakhine, in Myanmar, what we've seen in Syria, what we've seen in other parts of the world, in Libya, in Yemen, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And uh, is this not a, a, a validation of the view that ignorance and contempt of human rights provides then for wrongdoing on a massive scale? And uh, if we can only have a recognition 
that we as humans, as you said, planet Earth, that we, are, we belong to one team, team human beings, uh, that only if we have this vision can we keep the world safe. But the idea you know, put forward by the President of the United States, but uh, not just him, others, that there is a first, America first, you know, these chauvinistic nationalisms, it sort of in one way betrays the sense that uh, we all have universal rights that ought to be respected by all governments. America is a great democracy. It's inevitable that there will be differences of opinion, and it's as it should be. And all of the opinions are entitled to respect. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to follow them, or you have to agree with them if you think mm -hmm. they're wrong. And that's the condition we have in the world today, with the United States being a principal leader uh, in the thinking and acting on these principles. It's not that the people who glorify war are evil people or stupid people. Mm. They are not. They are patriotic people carrying on a, what they conceive to be a great tradition and giving us the power that we have now to control the world uh, and deal with it as we see fit. Uh, and those who are not fit to be cared for, well, just push them aside. Mm. Uh, that's a mentality which has existed in many countries. It mm. existed in Nazi Germany, of yes. course, yes. where inferior peoples were to be exterminated, yeah. useless eaters, yeah. they called them, uh, habitual criminals and so on. Uh, so we have a basic philosophical problem. And uh, how do you deal with that? That's deeply felt. You cannot end it by saying, I think you're wrong. They'll say, well, I think you're wrong. You're a dreamer. You're an idealist. You want to, you're reaching for the moon. To which my reply is, haven't you heard? We landed on the moon. <laughs> 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 and uh, and as, as, as distant as it may seem, uh, I think it's possible. And I don't agree with those who take, let's call it the conservative view. I don't share that because I see the impact of it on the people. And the impact is enormous. You're killing millions of innocent people who never did anybody any harm. The current system, current system, is if you don't agree, the heads of state don't agree, the president or whoever it is doesn't agree with another one, what do they do? They send young people over to kill the other young people mm -hmm. whom they don't even know, who may have done them no harm, who may have never harmed anybody, who will live in a country you may never have heard of, mm. and they kill each other until mm. they get tired of killing each other. Then they pause, each side declares victory, then they start again, and mm. they continue killing each other. Mm. And they spend all their money on improved weapons to kill more people mm. instead of using it to meet the legitimate concerns mm. of the people who are so distressed by their living conditions that they cry out in, in, in panic and in mm. fear, help, mm. help us, and will commit all kinds of acts which we call terrorism mm. in an effort to improve their own condition. Mm. So instead of using the funds to help them eliminate their justified complaints, mm. we use it to create more weapons mm. to kill more people. That is crazy, mm. in my opinion. Mm. I may be a nut, mm. but that is totally yeah. criminally yeah. insane. Yeah. And that is the policy followed today, mm. not only by the United States, mm. but many of its allies mm. and other countries. You made me think of uh, 
Isaiah Berlin's um, short credo, the speech he gave in 1994 in, at the University of Toronto, because he said what you were saying. He said, beware of the quiet philosopher who creates a philosophical ideal. And uh, to reach that utopia, you may have to clear the path of a few obstructions, including people who opposed the idea. Of course. And, and, and he said in, in the speech, um, uh, the search for a single overarching ideal, because it is the one and the only true one for humanity, invariably leads to coercion and then to destruction. Blood, eggs are broken, but the omelette is not in sight. There are only an infinite number of eggs, human lives, ready for the breaking. And in the end, the passionate idealists forget the omelette and just go on breaking eggs. So these are people who've sort of rationalized that there is something to be attained by violence. And what you're saying is violence <laughs> brings no good. And as humanity, we need to graduate to a point where war becomes unthinkable, not as a tool for achieving certain objectives, because ultimately in itself, it engenders so much criminal activity that it has to be uh, basically rendered unlawful completely. And as you said, aggression is the supreme uh, well, international you've, crime. You've gotten the point. I'm not just breaking eggs. Mm. I'm trying to save the planet. Yes. Uh, I'm trying yes. to save the lives of all the people on this planet. Yes. And so our hope lies with the young people the young people who will recognize that what I say is true mm. and that their lives are in danger. And as our capacity to kill increases and our concern for human rights and human needs is brushed into second place, they got the se sequence wrong. You'll yeah. never get to the second place yeah. unless you reverse the first one, get rid of it, yes. because that's what's causing the problem. Yeah. And uh, if we took the money we spend, uh, not only in the United States, but other nations, on killing machines, killing weapons, and use it to meet fundamental human rights, mm. maternity rights, mm. uh, the right of a mother to, to mm. feed her children, the mm. uh, right of a person to go to school, mm. uh, the right of taking care of health, taking care of old people, mm. if, if we use that money for those purposes, mm. there wouldn't be the mm. kind of discontent which makes them determined to kill and die That's for right. their particular cause. That's right. But can I can I go, uh, Ben, to another uh, passion of yours, uh, not just the search for justice, the end to all war, but to the protection and the justice done to victims in the form of restitution, trying to you know create for them a semblance of some form of uh, reconstruction of their former lives. One of the things that has been troubling me a great deal is that when you have a, a judicial process uh, where alleged wrongdoings have been, have been uh, highlighted and charges have been pressed, is that in the context of the trials, when you see a defendant express no remorse, and you've uh, spoken about this, and I wish you'd uh, convey to the uh, audience what it was like to sit with Otto Ollendorf or uh, Otto Ollendorf. When you see no remorse, uh, the, the victims themselves, for them, uh, the pain must be even deeper to see someone presented with all the evidence, unassailable, and yet stubborn refusal to believe that they have done anything wrong. If you're a victim of, of the most 
over the most superficial sort of wrongdoing, you'd like to see the person say sorry, that they've done you wrong and they apologize for it. When the crimes are col colossal, you really want to see that. And when it isn't forthcoming, it hurts, I would imagine. When I uh, recently, uh, a couple of years ago, had the honor, because it wasn't uh, an honor for me, to sit in Seoul, uh, the Republic of Korea, with uh, the victims of sexual slavery, the so-called comfort women. And we were talking about what would they need, what, would, what are their demands to ensure that somehow their suffering can be, can be recognized. Uh, one of them said to me, you have to believe me, it's, it's not the money. The money, I mean, we are elderly now, the money can go to other victims. We want to see a genuine recognition of remorse. And so I'm going to take you back to that, because this idea that you're sitting with one of the chief architects, um, uh, the uh, uh, commander of Group D, Otto Ollendorf, and who is just blank-faced and sitting. I mean, you presented all the evidence. It was indisputable. And yet, no sort of recognition. And I, I want to raise this because I think this is the part in everything that we're doing that is still missing. And I think there is an answer, but it may not be in the form of sort of the, the judicial systems that we have in place. The, the inkling comes from an interview that Gita Sereny did with Otto, sorry, with Franz uh, Stangl, the uh, second uh, commandant of Treblinka where in 1971 she was, he'd already been convicted by a West German court and he was serving his sentence and he was never going to see the light of day again. I mean, he was, he was going to be in detention for the rest of his life. And she conducted a series of interviews, the last of which uh, she decided instead of asking him questions, she would let him talk. And she said to him, you know, what have you learned from all of this? And very slowly, he began to, began to recognize his guilt. But it, there were long pauses, half an hour between each answer. And then he sort of said, you know, I, I am guilty. And then he sort of uh, went on to say of having lived this long. In other words, he could got himself to the point, and he should have said of having murdered millions of people. But what gave away the sign that he eventually recognized uh, is the, his body sagged completely. And it's almost like he collapsed inside. In courtrooms the world over, including in the International Criminal Court, seldom do we see this recognition, this contrition, um, which I would uh, argue the victims sort of need to see as well. Uh, do we need to think like that? And, and we know you have led the way in having us focus at all of these different components, but do we need to, because perhaps if we begin to see that, we begin to sort of make those who uh, are contemplating wrongful acts of recognizing before they were to conduct these, um, these or exercise uh, or perpetrate these actions, make them contemplate these issues in a deeper sense. Is there something in, in, in that way of thinking? Well, you've raised a, a very profound question of human guilt and recognition of it. And of course, I faced, I dealt with that problem as well. When we got through with the 
complicated program, a year-long program of compensating individual victims for provable injuries, as you would in an insurance case. That was prompted and made possible because the German Chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, a devout Catholic, made a public speech in which he said terrible crimes have been committed in the name of the German people, and it imposes upon us a legal and moral obligation to try to make amends. Yeah. With that opening, yeah. we began to sit down and negotiate with the Germans. That was the next phase, compensating the victims. And it never had happened in human history. Yeah. No victims had directly been compensated. They had reparations, which they usually went to the government, and that didn't work very well either. But to have been able to put through a claim, and I can say to you and sit here, that there is no Nazi victim who didn't have a right to claim, except those who lived in the Eastern territories. So I'm giving you the overall picture first to come to okay. your complicated question. About remorse. Of, of their remorse, remorse. I would say the following. First of all, I lived in Germany to do all these things in a period of almost 10 years. During that time, no German ever came up to me and said, I'm sorry, hmm. none. It would be asking too much, because the people I'd ask, either their father was involved, or mm. most likely themselves were involved. The German government decided I was going to, they were going to give me their highest civilian award, for Dienstkreuz Erste Klasse. Mm. Very fancy thing, it looked like mm. Rommel used to wear that. Uh, I said, I'll let you know. So I met with various groups, and I said, the German government wants to give me that medal. Uh, what's your reaction? I was not surprised to see that most of the people said, are you crazy? Mm. Uh, you're going to sit down? It was mm. the same group who wanted to kill us when we mm. negotiated. Mm. Uh, you're going to let them hang a, mm. a ribbon around your neck, using you as a patsy you know, yeah. for that. Yeah. And uh, I thought about it, and I said, I'm going to accept it. Yeah. And I'm going to accept it because this is another generation. Yeah. This is their way of saying I'm sorry. Yeah. And it would be asking too much yeah. to ask the individuals who themselves were the murderers yeah. to say I'm sorry because yeah. they couldn't live with themselves. Yeah. They murdered children by smashing their heads against yeah. the tree. Yeah. It was common practice. Yeah. And I said, this is the new generation saying yeah. I'm sorry, and yeah. I will not spit in their face by saying no. And the work that I do with my office, uh, Ben, when we when we see the return of the thinking that somehow peoples are more exceptional than others, that that they are uh, entitled to um, rights uh, that somehow differ from uh, the rights entitled or should that that should be, could be claimed by migrants, for instance, or those who are from ethnic and racial minorities, or somehow different. And we see throughout uh, Europe, again, uh, sort of this almost relapse into a way of thinking which is, uh, to my mind and I'm sure to yours, um, deeply troubling. Because in one way it sort of uh, shows the, the lack or the absence of any deeper thinking about the history of the continent. Uh, so, and I've gone public on this, we have the Prime Minister of Hungary saying that he doesn't want his people to be uh, mixing with people of another color. Mm -hmm. uh, when there are barely 1,300 Afro-Hungarians in Hungary, a, a country of 10 million people, and he's just won his third uh, election. 
Um, we see anti-Semitism rife again throughout Europe. Uh, we see hostility to, uh, of course, immigrant communities again emerging from the far right. And even in uh, a country like Italy, uh, the birthplace of, of uh, fascism in terms of its philosophies. There's this group, uh, Casa Pound, which is, uh, which is openly fascist, and, and uh, they are being interviewed, and they go around and uh, harass uh, immigrants. So, so once again, the fight is on. Maybe it never left us. Maybe this is a continuous struggle for those of us who believe in humanity, without distinction, without placing labels, without differentiating. We're all humans entitled to equal rights. and we, we deserve to live in dignity without deprivation, discrimination, or fear. Um, and uh, in that, um, as a, a, a proud American, someone who served his country in war and in peace, represented the United States in uh, the most arduous challenges, um, I noticed that uh, you put out a statement in the same way that we put out a statement uh, when uh, there was the separation of families taking place uh, in the United States, a country that uh, really ever since the end of the Second World War has been at the forefront in terms of the advocacy of universal rights and the universal rights agenda. It must have been painful for you to have seen this. It was very painful for me. Uh, I knew the Statue of Liberty. I came under the Statue of Liberty as an immigrant. Send me your homeless, your tired, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send these uh, uh, the distress to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. The lamp went out when he said, no immigrants allowed unless they meet the, the rules that we laid down. It was outrageous. I was... I, I was furious at anybody would think that it's permissible to take the young children to four or five years of age and take them away from the parents and say the parents go to another country, the children go to another country, we'll get you together maybe at some later date. It's a crime against humanity. The way we list crimes against humanity in the statute of the International Criminal Court, we have other inhumane acts designed to cause suffering, great suffering. What could cause more great suffering than what they did in the name of immigration law. It's ridiculous. You have to change the laws that's in the law. So I was furious, and we should be furious, and the students were furious, and that gave me a lot of encouragement. Mm. And if you don't change the rules and make it clear that the law has to be changed to meet the needs of the society it's supposed to serve, that's what law is all about. So it's illegal to do what they are doing. They are threatening you. They are wasting your assets and resources on killing machines when you needed to pay off your your Mortgage school tuition, school tuition uh, yeah. which should have been free for everybody. And I think the students would be responsive to that. Yes. Uh, but it requires a mechanism of re-education. We need you, Ben, to keep fighting for us as well. I never I, give up. I know. <laughs> I do the best I can. And I never give up, and I got a slogan, law, not war. I never give up, and that's my advice to the students. Three pieces of advice I give them. One, never give up. Two, never give up. Three, never give up. That's correct. Ben, thank you so much. It's a true honor. Thank my you. pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was Zaid Rad Al Hussein, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, in conversation with the 99-year-old Ben Ferrance, last surviving prosecutor of the subsequent Nuremberg trials. You've been listening to The Lid Is On, a 
podcast from UN News with me, Connor Lennon. Thanks for tuning in.